You know, one of the um, proudest moments of my career as a doctor so far was when I was um, in my first year of being a junior doctor, I was applying for a job in my medical school in my second year. And so as I was doing this application, I had to put some references down, as you do for any job. And I put down this reference of this uh, very prominent surgeon that I worked for in Leicester, a chap called Mr. Kelly. Uh, every doctor know, knows who Mr. Kelly is in Leicester. He's a very well-known guy. And anyway, I remember I was working on a ward, and it was a weekend, it was a Saturday, and Mr. Kelly came down with his team to do his uh, Saturday ward round. And he said to me, he said, Adam, who do I need to ring personally at the medical, medical school so I can recommend you for that job that you've applied for? And I was a bit taken aback by like This was Mr. Kelly. I mean, this guy was, had such a great reputation. But it was a really great moment because it made me feel a bit vindicated for the hard work that I'd done for him. But also it made me realize that he appreciated my hard work, he appreciated what I did. And it was just a really great moment. And I'm sure many of you guys have got examples of that in your life um, to share. But we know, don't we, that these references, these personal kind of commendations are important, aren't they, in job applications? I mean, it's not just in medicine. It's in any form of work, whether it's education, it could be business, whatever. But they, they were very, very important in the first century, particularly in the church. And they were important in the church because I want you to remember that in the first century, as the church was growing, there were many different ministry teams being sent out by different churches to do different works. Maybe some were going to do evangelism, some were going to do teaching. And the church was not as well connected as we are in the first century. They certainly didn't have as much information as we have to check whether someone was dodgy or whether they were really uh, ministers of Christ. And so what the churches did is when they sent these mission teams out, they sent a letter of recommendation to the people that they were going to go to, to say, look, you can trust these guys. They are real believers. They are true. They're not false. And they're bearing fruit in their life. And so this is what was going on a lot in the first century church. But when it came to Paul, we know that Paul had no problem with these letters of recommendation. He sent out Timothy with letters of recommendation. I mean, he even said in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 3, the following. He said, And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. So Paul had no problem with these letters. But in his relationship with the Corinthian church, he didn't need any letters of recommendation either from someone that was sending him or from them, them when they sent him out onto some other mission trip. Because he was the man that planted that church. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. He had been personally called by the visible presence of Jesus. I can't think of a better recommendation than that, than Jesus saying, I want you to go and do that. But what was happening in the Corinthian church, was there were false teachers that were rising up in their midst, having an influence on the, the congregation. And what they were saying, they were saying to the people there, you can't really trust Paul. You can't trust his leadership. You can't trust his apostleship because he doesn't have these letters of recommendation. These false teachers had been sent probably from Judea, and they had letters of recommendation, and so they put their hope in those. And they were saying, look, you just you can't trust Paul. He doesn't have these letters. And of course, Paul would have found out about these accusations from Timothy and Titus. And this context, this historical background, is what sets the scene for this chapter today in 2 Corinthians. 
as he begins in verse 1, as he's asking those two questions, do we need to commend ourselves? Do we, meet, do we need epistles of commendation to you or from you? He's bringing up this accusation that's being made against him about him not really being a real leader. And he's going to deal with that today in this chapter. And so what we're going to see is two things. Paul's going to talk about two main things in this chapter. In verses 2 and 3, he's going to give a reason why he does not need letters of recommendation. He's going to deal with that further. And then from verse 4 until verse 18, quite quite incredible part of Scripture, he's going to contrast the old covenant with the new covenant and how that applies to his situation. So he starts off in verse 2 and 3, and it says the following. It says, You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is of the heart. Now, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talked about good trees. Do you remember he said in Matthew 7 that good trees produce good fruit, bad trees produce bad fruit, good trees cannot produce bad fruit, and bad trees can't produce good fruit. What a mouthful that is. But what Jesus was teaching there was he was saying, look, what someone is is obvious. It's obvious from the fruit that's coming forth from their life. Someone who knows me, someone who's born again, the fruit that comes from their life will be good fruit. And this teaching forms the basis of what Paul's saying in these two verses. Because he's saying of the Corinthian believers that they were producing some kind of evidence in their life. Evidence that looked like a letter. An epistle, which was written in the hearts of Paul and his co-workers, and it was known and read by all men. All men there meaning anyone else that was observing them, whether they were believers or unbelievers. And he says in verse 3 that because of this evidence, he says, clearly, you are an epistle of Christ. And I want you to notice that he's saying they're an epistle of Jesus, Jesus Christ. They're linking these Corinthian believers to Jesus. They're saying that they belong to Jesus. And therefore, because of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7, the fruit that was being produced in them must have been good. It was fruit that was pointing towards Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 3 to say that this was being produced by the Spirit of the living God in their hearts. Something had happened to these people. They'd heard the gospel. They'd responded to the gospel. They'd been born again in the Spirit. And the Spirit was beginning to produce this fruit in them. And this is the main point, one of the main points, that he wants to bring out in these two verses. That listen... It was God who was producing this fruit. Where it says written in verse 2 and in verse 3, where it says known and read in verse 2, the way those words are written in the Greek emphasize, listen, the fact that God was producing this fruit. So as Paul had relations with these people, whether it's directly or indirectly, he saw, like a letter that has a specific author, the author of this fruit was God. Like a letter that has a specific subject, the subject of these people's lives was Jesus. Like letters that are different in length, some are short, some are long, some have different paragraphs. The Corinthian believers' lives looked different, but listen, they pointed all in the same direction to Jesus. This was what was happening. And brothers and sisters, this is the same for us. If you're in here this morning and you've responded to the gospel, you've believed in Jesus Christ, you trust in him, you are an epistle of Christ. The Spirit is in you, he is working on your heart, and he is working to produce fruit that testify of the risen Lord Jesus. And I believe that the Lord wants to say this specifically to us because how often do we not identify ourselves as letters of Christ? 
How often do we identify ourselves with our past experiences or our present problems or the uncertainty of the future? I myself am a, a good example of this. If I'm being completely honest with you and transparent, one of the things I've struggled with over the last 12 years as a Christian is what it means to have an identity in Christ. I believe in him, but I do struggle with that. And so when I struggle with that, I have to ask myself these questions. Am I a letter of my past experience of coming from a broken family? No, I'm a letter of Christ. Am I a letter of current problems that I've faced, like infertility? No, I'm a letter of Christ. Am I a letter of unknown future in the next 10 years? I don't know what I'm going to be doing. No, I am a letter of Christ. And it's the same for you. You are a letter of Christ if you believe in Jesus in here this morning. You're not a product of your past experiences. You're not a letter of your current difficulties. You're not a letter of the uncertainties of the future. You are a letter of Christ. Do not allow the devil or the world or your own flesh to take that identity away from you. God is doing this good work in you, brothers and sisters. Now Paul, in these two verses, says that the reason why he doesn't need a letter of recommendation is because of the lives of the Corinthian believers. It's because of the fruit that's being produced in their lives. And he has confidence in this, that God is doing this work, and that this gives him credibility, because isn't that the testimony of Scripture? Isn't it the testimony of Scripture that God has to work in someone's life to save them? Isn't it the testimony of Scripture that God has to work in someone's life to make them more like Christ? Isn't it the testimony that God has to work in someone's life to resurrect them in the future onto glory? Yes, this is the case. Let's look at a few verses that show this. They should come up on your screen. John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Showing that God is the one that has to draw us onto salvation. And that Jesus is the one that resurrects us in the future. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's speaking of the new birth that God gives us in Christ. It's his work. And then lastly, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 and 24, it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. It is God who sanctifies you. He's the one that leads that process. He's the one that does it. And this is why Paul has such confidence that he doesn't need any letters of recommendation. Because the Corinthian believer's fruit is his evidence. He's saying, look guys, I don't need these letters. Just look at your lives. God is working in your lives. He is producing good fruit in your lives. That is, should be enough evidence for you that I, as a minister, as it says there in verse 3, I just ministered this to you. It's God that's working it. That should be your evidence. You know, brothers and sisters, too many pastors nowadays base the success of their ministry on the number of people in their church. Or they base the success of their ministry on the amount of money they have in their account. Or how, um, how can I put it, how um, known they are on things like social media, like Twitter and Facebook. But this should not be what we look for as pastors to show that the ministry is working. It should be you. Your changed lives as you grow to become more like Christ. I said to my home group a couple of weeks ago that the thing that would bless me the most in the ministry is seeing those people in that home group and also everyone here know Jesus more and be more like Christ. 
I know that's John's ambition as well. It's not that we don't struggle with the temptation to be successful, either financially or to be well-known or to have more people in the church. If the church grew to 300 in a year, I would be happy about that. But the main ambition that I have as a pastor is that you guys know Jesus more, you're more like Jesus, and you're more fruitful for Jesus. Amen? And I believe that if pastors have this ambition, the church would be in a more healthy state today. So he goes on. Uh, in, the, in, in basically the rest of the chapter, to, to, to really contrast between the old covenant, and what I mean by that is the covenant that was given to Moses, and the new covenant that's in Christ. And there's, a, there's an emphasis in these verses on the new covenant. But to understand the new covenant, and even to appreciate it fully, we have to understand what the old covenant was. What was the Mosaic Covenant? Now, firstly, the word that Paul uses for covenant in verse 6, that's a Greek word that basically uh, gives a picture of uh, a contractual relationship between two parties, where one party has the control of that relationship. That's what a covenant is in God's, God's eyes. Is when he gives the terms of relationship to human beings. This is how you relate to me. This is the parameters of it. These are the rules. This is what I expect of you in this relationship. Now, the old covenant was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And if you want a more extensive uh, teaching on that, I would encourage you to read Exodus chapter 19 to Exodus chapter 30 and 31. And in those chapters, uh, God gives Moses the Old Covenant, the law. But a bit of history, God has saved the Israelites out of Egypt. He's taken them out of there. He's taken them across the Red Sea. They've gone into the wilderness. They're on their way to the Promised Land. And they start complaining. They start complaining about their lack of food, their lack of water. And God in his grace gives them bread from heaven and he gives them the water out of the rock. Do you remember that in the book of Exodus? And so we then get to the scene when God gives Moses the old covenant and he calls Moses up to Mount Sinai. And he gives them the law of God. And what he's doing in giving the old covenant, giving the Mosaic covenant, listen, this is very important. He's saying to Moses, look, if you follow my laws... If you follow my commands and my statutes, it will be okay with you. If you don't follow my laws, if you don't follow my commands, if you don't follow my statutes, it will not be okay between me, you, and the Israelites. And this is really, really important. Please listen to this. I know I might be boring sometimes, but listen to this. The old covenant was set up on the basis of human beings having to work themselves to have a relationship with God. It was based upon human effort. Human effort to fulfill laws so that sin could be covered and that they could be right with God. That was the basis of the old covenant. And the reason why God did that was because he wanted human beings to realize that they can't fulfill the law. He wanted human beings to realize that through the law, they're imperfect and they need a savior. I mean, we see this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. That should be up on your screens. It says, But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, listen, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, it confirms what he says in Galatians. It says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. 
So God gave the Old Testament law to the Israelites and to the whole human race because he wanted to show human beings that they could not fulfill it. That in their own human effort, in their own sinfulness, there was no way that they could save themselves. And he wanted to say, you need a saviour. And through the Old Testament, God gave prophecies about the Messiah that would come. And his intention through the law was to say, you can't save yourself. Look to the Messiah that is going to come. That was the purpose of the Old Covenant. But of course, the New Covenant comes through Jesus. Hallelujah. The New Covenant comes through what Jesus did on the cross specifically when his blood was shed. Because all covenants in the scripture are ratified by the shedding of blood. All covenants come into effect by blood being shed. And when Jesus' blood was shed, the new covenant came into effect. And listen, this is again very important, the new covenant was set up on the basis of it being God's effort to save human beings. God's ability to save human beings through his love, through his grace, through his mercy. That on the cross, as Jesus was taking the curse of the law, because it says, cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree, the curse was removed for us through the law so that we could be forgiven. Amen. That is the new covenant, the new covenant that comes through Jesus. And in these verses, from verses 4 to 18, we're going to see three things about the new covenant. In verses 4 to 6, we're going to see that the Holy Spirit is the administrator of the new covenant. From verses 7 to 12, we're going to see that the new covenant is more glorious than the old covenant. And then from verses 13 to 18, we're going to see that the new covenant brings freedom. So let's look at those three sections. So if we read verses 4 to 6 again, it says, And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. Now I want you to see that Paul is really following on here from what he said in verses 2 and 3. And he's saying that, look, this, this ministry that I have, this, in a sense, this ministry, this service that I've given to you, that has brought forth this fruit in your life, it's not from me. I am not sufficient. We are not sufficient in and of ourselves to do this work. It's God that makes us sufficient. He says that even God has made us sufficient as ministers of this new covenant. He's saying there, look, we have not done this work in our own strength. We've not done it in our own human effort. We have done this by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that has enabled us to be your servants, to see this fruit being produced in your life. And this shows us, brothers and sisters, the first thing that is just so incredible about the new covenant. And that is that the Spirit of the Lord comes to dwell within our hearts. This is spoken of specifically in two prophecies in the Old Testament that I just want to share with you. They should come up on the screen. The first one is Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34, that says, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Praise God. And then in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. 
I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. This is the work of the Spirit in the New Covenant. The Spirit, as we respond to the Gospel, comes to dwell within our hearts. And listen, He writes the laws of God on your heart. He doesn't just write the laws of God on your heart, He gives you the desire to do them. He doesn't just give you the the desire to do them, He enables you to do them. This is what the Spirit does in our hearts. He changes us. He makes us more like Christ. Now in the Old Covenant, the law was an external thing that you had to try and fulfill to be right with God. But in the New Covenant, God, by His Spirit, puts the law in your heart, not so that you have to do it to be saved, but that as the Spirit works in your life and produces the the law from within you, it testifies of Jesus. That is the work of the Spirit in the New Covenant. He is the administrator of that. Now, does that mean that in the New Covenant we just sit back on our armchairs and be like, you know, Lord, you just do what you want to do. I'm just going to sit here and just wait for your Spirit to move my arm and go and do this ministry or this mission or whatever. No, that's not the case. The New Testament doesn't teach that. The New Testament teaches that although the Spirit leads this work, although He is sovereign over this work, we are called to be involved. We have a responsibility to cooperate with the Spirit. The best verse that speaks of that is in the the book of Philippians where it says, Work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it's the Lord who works in you to do and to will for your own good. And I want you to see that in that verse, sorry it's not up on the screen, but it's speaking of the fact that God is working in your heart through the new covenant, but you have to work out that reality. You do have a responsibility to do that. And the Bible presents this beautiful picture of the sovereignty of God, but yet man's responsibility within that sovereignty. I don't really know how that works. I don't think the Bible teaches it. But that is a reality. This is the new covenant, brothers and sisters. This is how it works. Now the reason why Paul's bringing this up here, look at verse 6, is because he's contrasting this ministry of the letter and the ministry of the Spirit. And he says the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And so he's contrasting the old covenant and the new covenant there He's acknowledging that the old covenant produces, in a sense, death spiritually, but the new covenant produces life. But he's doing that, listen, because he wants them to think about the influence of the false teachers that were rising up in the church. Later on in 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, it says that the false teachers that were there in that church were not of Jesus. They were not preaching the real gospel. They were not born again. They weren't God's people. And so when they were having their influence on the Corinthian church, listen, they were coming in the flesh. Their ministry was of the flesh. It was of the sinful nature. It was trying to promote your own ability to be right with God. That's what was happening in the Corinthian church at that time. That's why it says that their ministry was of the letter. They were of the flesh. And what was the result of that? Well, we know. John spoke about this last week. As these false teachers were getting more influential in the church, the Corinthian believers submitted to them, and they basically hurt Paul very badly. And so Paul had to write a very severe letter, which uh, John spoke about last week, rebuking them, basically. And so the effect of the ministry of these false teachers, listen, was it didn't produce any good thing. It ended up in, you could say, spiritual demise. It was killing the Corinthian believers. As it says there, the letter kills. But what happened? Well, because the Corinthian believers were born again through God's grace, they responded to that severe letter. 
To that rebuke, they repented, and the Spirit began to produce fruit in their life again. Now, he's saying this because he doesn't want them to forget their mistake. He's writing this letter after he's rebuked them with this severe letter. And he's saying to them, I don't want you to forget how these false teachers came. I don't want you to forget what the effect was on your life. Because listen, as born-again believers, even though the Spirit comes to dwell within us, we still have a flesh, don't we? We still have a sinful nature that desires to go after sin. And listen, this is why false teachers have always been successful within the church. Because you know what false teachers do? They appeal to your flesh. They appeal to that part of you that wants to make yourself right with God through the law. They appeal to that part of you that wants to get away with sin. That's what false teachers do. And listen, however strong you are in the spirit, you're always susceptible to that temptation. Because the flesh is always drawn to the flesh. Have you ever been in a situation where you're talking to another Christian and they're telling you about some sort of sin in their life? I mean, have you ever noticed that you start being drawn to that sin? That's because the flesh is drawn to the flesh. And so Paul's saying, look, you guys, you're doing well, but remember what happened to you. Don't forget how these false teachers worked. And you in here today, be aware that you have a flesh. I know you all know that. But be aware that false teachers, whoever they may be, they are looking to attract your flesh. And you are susceptible to that. Just remember that. Let the Lord give you discernment not to come under that. So he goes on in verses 7 to 12, and he brings up the second thing about the new covenant, which is that the new covenant is more glorious than the old covenant. And what I want you to know is that when Paul was writing here, he's, he, he is thinking about specific verses in the Old Testament. And in a sense, this is kind of like a commentary of a certain section of Scripture in Exodus. And the section of Scripture is in Exodus 34, verses 29 to 35. You can read that later on. But as we go through, I'll let you know which section corresponds to which in the book of Exodus. So he starts off in verse 7 by saying, But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses, because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. Now, what this verse corresponds to is when Moses came down from Mount Sinai a second time. And if you remember, when, back in Exodus, when God gave Moses the, the, the Ten Commandments, do you remember that the Israelites, they got a bit fed up with waiting for Moses? And they went to Aaron and they said, can you make us a god? And so Aaron got all of their gold and he basically made this golden calf. And they started worshipping the golden calf and they basically entered into idol worship. God saw that, Moses saw that, God was so angry about that that he said he was going to wipe the nation of Israel off the face of the earth. And Moses said, Lord, just please, please have grace upon them. And so the Lord said, okay, I'm not going to do that. Moses went down the mountain, and as he was going down the mountain, when he saw what the Israelites were doing, do you remember he dropped the tablets of stone? And as he dropped them, they broke before him and the nation of Israel as a sign that they'd already broken the old covenant. <laughs> they'd already broken it in their sin. But God, in his grace, in his mercy, and in his love for the Israelites, he reestablished the covenant. He called Moses back up to the mountain and he wrote the Ten Commandments again. So he renewed it. And so in this verse, Moses is coming down the mountain a second time. And as it says there, he's carrying the ministry of death. The ministry of the Old Covenant, which I've already said, 
when you put a human being up against the law of God, what does it produce? Well, it just exposes your spiritual death. That's why the old covenant's called the ministry of death. Written and engraved on stones. But listen, it says there that this old covenant was glorious. And the word for glorious there is basically a word that would suggest something that's very bright, something that's very exalted. Why was the old covenant glorious? Well, it was glorious, listen, because it came from God. Anything that comes from God is glorious because God is glorious. But the other reason it was glorious was because of its intentions. Its intentions, as I've said, was to expose people's sin so that they would believe in the Messiah when he came. That's why the old covenant was glorious. Because its intention was to actually save people through Jesus. And so he comes down, Moses, and obviously something's happened to Moses as he's on the mountain. He's been in the glory of God in the cloud, and his face starts to shine, it says there. He has the glory of his countenance. So his face is shining as he comes down. You can imagine John coming back from holiday and his face shining with the glory of God. Just imagine that as he's coming in. And the Israelites, they could not look at the face of Moses because it was too bright. And they were actually scared. And I believe that that's because God wanted to show that indeed the old covenant was glorious. But look at what it says at the end of verse 7, and this is the most important thing. It says, which glory was passing away. So as Moses is coming down the mountain, the glory of the old covenant, the glory of his face is beginning to fade. And why is that? Well, he's come from the mountain where the perfect God is, where there's no sin, and he's coming down to the Israelites where there is sin. Listen to this. The glory of God can never be in the presence of sin. It just can't. They don't go together. In the old covenant, which exposes our sin, where sin abounds, the glory of God fades away. Because God wants to show us that we need our sin dealt with by somebody else. That's why he allowed his glory to fade. Because he wanted to make a specific point to the Israelites that this is not going to save you. This law is not going to save you. Only my Messiah will save you. And so he goes on in verse 8. And having considered all these truths about the Spirit and about the glory of the old covenant and how it fades away, he asks a question in verse 8. And he says, considering this, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? And of course, the answer to that question is, yes, of course, the ministry of the Spirit, which is the new covenant, is more glorious than the old covenant. And in verses 9 to 11, he gives us two reasons why. The first reason is in verses 9 and 10, where it says, for if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. And what he's saying here is he's saying that, listen, the new covenant is more glorious than the old in its effect upon people. The old covenant was the ministry of condemnation. When someone tries to fulfill the law, they just get condemned. And they end up failing because of their sin. But listen... The new covenant is a ministry of righteousness because it's dependent on God's righteousness. God's righteousness that never, ever fails. And in God's righteousness, he chose to send himself, Jesus himself, to the cross where he was punished for our sin, he was judged for our sin, he bore the wrath of God for our sin, his blood was shed, and listen, that is an incredibly successful ministry, brothers and sisters. It is the ministry of righteousness. It never, ever fails. The blood of Jesus Christ washes away all of your sin. It removes your sin as far to the east as it is to the west. It never fails. And so therefore, 
the ministry of the new covenant far excels the glory of the old covenant. Even if the old covenant had glory, when you consider the fact that the new covenant always uh, is successful, it is so much more glorious. Amen. But then the second thing is in verse 11, where he says, For if what was passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. And so the second reason why the new covenant is more glorious than the old is because of the fact that it goes on. It goes on, it goes on, it goes on. Whereas the old covenant came to an end, the new covenant keeps on going. And I believe that he's, he, he's thinking of three specific things here. Firstly, the effect of the new covenant goes on forever. We've already said that the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to forgive any person. Whoever they may be, however sinful they are, the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient. And that is always the case. It will always be the case until Jesus comes back a second time. Any person can get saved. There's no prerequisite to salvation. Anyone can get saved because the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient. So in its effect, it goes on. But then in its evidence, it goes on. Remember, when Jesus was resurrected, he was resurrected and he still had the scars, didn't he? In his body. So there was still evidence in Jesus' body when he was resurrected of the new covenant starting on the cross. And do you know when Jesus comes back, those scars will still be there? Do you know when Jesus establishes his kingdom forever, those scars will still be there? So there's always going to be a reminder, there's always going to be evidence of the new covenant glory. Hallelujah. It goes on and it goes on. But then lastly, the new covenant is more glorious because it goes on in its application to us as believers. I've already said today that when you respond to the gospel, you're born again. The Spirit comes to take residence within you. And do you know, brothers and sisters, I mean, this is making me smile even thinking about it. Do you know that that means the glory of God is in you? It says in verse 18, jump there, it says that we with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. What that means is, I'll come on to it in a bit more detail later on. But it means this, that the glory of God is in you because the Spirit of God is in you. When I, look, when I get up in the morning and I look in the mirror, I see a 33-year-old that's getting a bit more bold, is getting older, and I'm not always happy at what I see. But you know, God's saying to us today that when you look in the mirror, spiritually you should see the glory of God. Because you're born again in the Spirit. The glory of God is within you. And listen, I believe that that is an everlasting thing. I do believe that the Scriptures teach that reality, that when you are born again, you are always born again. Jesus said to his disciples, when I give you the Spirit, the Spirit will be with you forever. John said in John chapter 10, Jesus himself said, sorry, that no one can take anyone that belongs to me out of my hand. No created thing. And guess what? That does include you. Once you're born again, you're always born again. Jesus says to you, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. What does that mean? The glory of God is going to be in you forever, brother. It's going to be in you forever, sister. The glory of the new covenant in you is always there. And that is why the new covenant is so much more glorious than the old covenant. Because I believe that wasn't present in the old covenant. I don't think that promise is there in the Old Testament. Now, joining this all together about the glory of the new covenant, I want to bring up a couple of verses, or actually one verse, sorry, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22. It says there, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, 
And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, I want, I'm bringing this, these verses up because this speaks of a reality for us as believers as we live in the glory of the new covenant that I do believe God wants to speak to us about today. Because of the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus, because of the fact that you are born again, do you know in here today that you have free access to the throne room of God? Do you know that there is nothing that hinders you from going into the presence of the Lord because of the sufficiency of the blood of Christ and because of the Spirit within you? Do you know that the Scriptures teach that all of your sin, past, present, and future, is forgiven and dealt with in Jesus Christ? Therefore, there's nothing that hinders you to going to his presence. Does that shock you, that statement here today? That you have free access to the throne room of God? I believe many Christians have not even grasped the reality of the glory of the new covenant, the fact that this glory is in you and you can go into the very presence of God at any time, wherever you are, whether you're on your own, whether you're in a group, whether you're at work, whatever it might be, whether you have cancer, whether you, whatever, you can go to God at any time because of the blood of Christ and the Spirit being within you. Many Christians don't do this because they feel that they're too sinful. Have you felt that before, that you can't approach God because you're too sinful? Do you know that's a very unbiblical thing to think? Because every single one of your sins is dealt with in the cross. Yes, we have to repent of our sins daily, but your sins are forgiven, brother. Your sins are forgiven, sister. Whoever you are, respond to the Lord today. And go into that presence. The other reason that Christians don't do this is because they believe that they have to feel something. They have to have some sort of emotional experience to first go into the throne room of God. I'm not saying that being in the presence of God is not an emotional experience, but I am saying that what you need first, listen to this very carefully, what you need first to go into the presence of God through the new covenant is faith. That's it. You just have to believe in what Jesus has done for you on the cross. And then you can go into the presence of God at any time. Amen, brothers and sisters. Let us do this more. I believe if we simply, by faith, believe wholeheartedly what God has done for us on the cross, we will experience the glory of the new covenant more. So as we go into our last section from verses 13 to 18. Paul is bringing up the last thing about the new covenant in contrast to the old covenant, and that is that the new covenant brings freedom. Freedom. He says in verse 13, having followed on from verse 12, where he says, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. So in Exodus 34, what happens next in those verses, from verses 25 to the end of the chapter, as Moses comes down, as he sees the Israelites scared of the glory of God and they're sort of stepping back, he says, no, come over, come over. I need to talk to you. We've got this, this covenant to talk about. And so they come to Moses, and, and it says there that they were given the covenant that God had given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And it seems to indicate in the scripture in Exodus 34 that they became kind of used to seeing Moses with this glory in his countenance. Because every time Moses went to be in the presence of God, whether it was on the mountain or in the tabernacle, he would come out shining. And it seems to indicate in the chapter that the Israelites became used to this. And I think Moses knew that what was happening was they were beginning in their hearts to think, hey, you know, if we keep this law, we can, 
keep the glory of God. We can keep the glory of God with us. Do you notice what's happening there? They're starting to put their trust in themselves. Their trust in their own ability to fulfill the law, to not just save themselves, but to keep the glory of God. To keep the very presence of God with them. They're thinking that it's their endeavor that keeps that. And Moses was like, that's not good. I don't want them to think that. The purpose of this law is to show these guys they're sinners. It's not to actually promote them. It's to show that they need a savior, and that savior will will be the Messiah. And so he decided to cover his face. He covered his face with this veil when he was with them because he didn't want them to get used to seeing the glory of God. He didn't want them to get used to the reality that the glory of God was with them through them following the law. But what does it say? In verse 14 it says, But their minds were blinded. And I believe what this means is, is that the Israelites, unfortunately, because of Moses' endeavor, they started, as I said earlier on, to trust in themselves to save themselves through the law. They started to exalt themselves rather than to exalt God. And we know through the history of Israel, don't we, brothers and sisters, that they failed over and over and over and over again, but their minds and their hearts became more blinded, and then the ultimate example of that was the Pharisees in the New Testament. The ultimate example of a people group that was so blind to their need for a saviour. And so what happened over their history, as it says there, In verse 14, as they did this, as they got more trusting in themselves, a veil began to envelop their hearts. A veil of spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness to their sin. Spiritual blindness to their inability to fulfill the law. Spiritual blindness to the fact that they needed a Messiah. And so whenever you speak to a very orthodox Jew nowadays and you try and tell them that the old covenant is not sufficient, they're like, what do you mean? They're blind to that. It's the same with Gentiles, people who are non-Jews, especially if they're putting their trust in themselves to save themselves. There's a veil of spiritual blindness around their hearts. They cannot see that they need salvation. They cannot see that their own efforts won't work. And listen, this is really important, it's the same with Christians. Do you know that many brothers and sisters in the church, they believe that they have to do certain laws to maintain their relationship with God, to maintain their salvation? Do you know what happens when they do that? A veil of spiritual blindness comes upon that believer's heart. And they get colder to God. As it says in the book of Galatians, they fall from grace. They don't understand what grace is anymore. They begin to not even see what Jesus did for them on the cross. That's what happens when you become a legalistic Christian. When you add something to the gospel, whatever it may be, that is what happens. You become spiritually blind. And listen, that blindness, whether you're a believer or whether you're an unbeliever, will not be removed. As it says there, it will not be removed unless you turn to Jesus. Because God does not want any human being to think that their own effort saves them. God does not want any human being to think that their own sinfulness can somehow present something good to him. The only way that spiritual blindness to sin and the insufficiency of the old covenant to be removed is if you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way. It's the only way to real freedom. If you're in here this morning and you think that you can save yourself, or as a Christian, if you think you have to do certain things to maintain your relationship with God, listen, it's God who saved you. It's God that maintains you. Yes, you have responsibility. Yes, you're called to cooperate with the Spirit, but the emphasis is not on you, it's upon God. If you put the emphasis on you too much, you become spiritually blind. A veil envelops your heart. 
I thank God every day that spiritual blindness is removed in Jesus. I thank God that he loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross so that we could be freed from spiritual blindness. How does that come about? Well, we see that in verses 16 and 17. Where he says, Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, or there is freedom. Now I want you to notice something very interesting in these verses. Look at what it says. It says that the Lord is the Spirit, in verse 17. And it says in verse 16 that you have to turn to the Lord for the veil to be taken away. What that means is, is basically saying you have to turn to the Holy Spirit. That sounds a bit blasphemous, doesn't it? But it isn't because what it's speaking of there is that when you turn to the work of the Spirit as he draws you to Jesus. The Spirit was sent into the world to convict people of sin, to show them that they needed Jesus. And he does that to every, well, not to everyone, not necessarily to everyone every day, but he does that to people every day. And listen, when that happens, you must turn to that work. Where it says turns in verse 16, the way that word's written in Greek is written in a way where the emphasis is upon the person turning. The person has a responsibility to turn to that work actively, and when that happens, the veil is taken away. When you turn to the work of the Spirit, as He draws you to Jesus, the veil's taken away from your heart, that spiritual blindness is removed, you see that you need Jesus, you put your faith in Christ, and then you become His. That's how it works. That's how the veil is taken away. And so this is the first freedom that the new covenant brings. The first freedom is freedom from spiritual blindness to our sin. It's freedom to know Jesus, freedom to be saved, freedom to be reconciled with God into relationship. If you're in here today and you don't know Jesus, you're here today because this is what the Spirit wants to do in you today. If you're listening online and you don't know Jesus, the Spirit wants you to turn to his work today that he is doing in your life. Turn to that that conviction of sin, that conviction that you need a saviour. The veil will be removed and you'll be saved. Please do that. Because you must turn. It It is your responsibility to turn. But then lastly, as we finish in verse 18 we see the second freedom that the new covenant brings. Let's just read that verse again. It says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So we see in these verses the second freedom that the new covenant brings, and that is freedom to change. Freedom to change. He's speaking of believers here because he says that we all with unveiled face and that's the idea of the fact that when someone turns to the Lord your heart doesn't have that veil on it anymore and it's an unveiled face and so you can look in the mirror as it says there and you can see the glory of the Lord because the Spirit comes to dwell within you. Hallelujah. What an amazing thing. And God transforms you. He transforms you, he transforms you, listen, into the same image that you're seeing in the mirror. He transforms you into the image of Jesus from glory to glory. So as you grow in the Lord, as you are sanctified by the Spirit's work, as you cooperate with him in that work, you are going to grow in the greatest sense of the glory of God that is in you, from glory to glory. So does God give you the freedom as a Christian to try and make yourself right with him? No, that's not the freedom that God gives you. Does God give you the freedom as a Christian to basically believe in Jesus and really not see any changes in your life? No, that's not the freedom that Jesus calls you to in the new covenant. 
The freedom that God calls you to is he gives you the freedom to be the way he's always wanted you to be. (laughs) As one of his creations, he gives you the freedom to be right with him by the blood of Christ. And he gives you the freedom to become not exactly like Christ, but to grow into that same image. What an incredible thing the new covenant is, brothers and sisters.